0: Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Today, it's a pleasure to have with us, well, uh, I guess we could say uh, a goddess of science fiction, but, <laughs> that's, uh, but also we want to talk to her about something that she does outside of acting. It's Claudia Black, who's uh, you've seen her on Farscape and of course uh, my favorite role of yours was on uh, Stargate uh, SG-1 for the last two years um, of that show and so Claudia thanks for being with us today I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, it's a pleasure. And uh, before we get started we're going to we'll take a quick break but tell me a little bit about what you've done as far as helping people during COVID outside and dealing with some of the stress. What you what, I ended
1: up as a result of, you know, 10 years ago, I think approximately after having my second kid, I just went into a full blown life crash and I needed, wow. you know, I was like Humpty Dumpty and I needed whatever resources existed in LA within my financial means, which started to dwindle very much. So, you know, what tools worked, I was only interested in efficacy and I would get irritated with people that just, you know, sitting and talking about the stuff that was happening to me wasn't working and talk therapy can be great, but it just was nowhere near enough for me. And it was like sort of flying in a plane and then suddenly all of the lights on the dashboard just go off at the same time. Like my health, my life, everything just sort of crashed. So then I ended up finding three main um, sort of thought leaders, educators who are leaders in their fields who had amazing trauma tools and cognitive tools, stuff to do with neuroscience and and neurological issues in the body. and, And they sort of helped glue me back together and now I'm paying it forward.
0: That's great. Well, we're going to take a short break. When you come back, we'll talk a little bit about how you're paying it forward. Awesome. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, we're back. It's just asked the question. I am your host, Brian Carman with this. this is actress, Claudia black. And, uh, you- Claudia, we, I named this, uh, just ask the question after one of my mentors who was Helen Thomas, who often told me, uh, in the press in the white house, she goes, doesn't matter what the answer is. Doesn't matter if they answer it, just ask the question. So here I am. I'm going to just ask the question, how are you paying it forward? What are you doing to help ease suffering of others? Um,
1: what's, I think what we're dismantling with the huge shakeup we're experiencing culturally that needed to happen in America, there's pieces of Western medicine that are great, you know, when you want your finger stitched back on, which had to happen to me after a motorcycle accident. That sort of medicine is amazing. Um, so thank you to that surgeon. Uh, that wait, medicine. wait, 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 wait,
0: stop. <laughs> yeah, you had have your finger sewn back on? Because-
1: yeah, I sort of partially amputated it. I did what apparently people call whiskey throttling. It fell over in the, in the very sandy, boggy part of the track. And I was trying to get all these teenage kids sorted on their bikes because it was my son's birthday party, and we go out into this feral place in Gorman and do dirt biking every year with a couple of my friends, you know, some really cool, you know, mums and dads, and and we just that that year they had upgraded from using the bikes with the governors, so they were having to use their own clutches, and everyone kept stalling. Every three seconds, someone else would stall, and we'd have to start their bikes again. And we just got everyone sorted, and then one more kid stalled, and I was like, oh. <laughs> And I was like, all right, hang on a second. And I turned my bike and it fell over just because of the angle and where it was in the sand. And I went to pick it up and the engine was still on and I throttled accidentally and my finger sort of went off with the bike.
0: (laughs) I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. No,
1: please, (laughs) everything in my life is, I'd much rather it be a comedy than a tragedy, my dear. That's the choice.
0: I did that when I was a kid with uh, hedge clippers. I clipped the end of my finger off and they, (laughs) they had to sew it back on. Never did it on a motorcycle. Well, you were on a dirt bike, but dirt bike. That would be, yeah, it would be, that would be painful. So anyway, continue. So you got your Western medicine was great. Got your fingers sewed back on, but I
1: have to say, I did actually use the very trauma tools that I've been sharing with people lately. I use them to keep me calm on the way to the hospital and to manage everybody else. And that's sort of been a theme of my life. When, when the shit goes down, everyone else panics. And partly because it's part of the ADD brain, apparently. We're right. really, really good in a crisis. So I would say, no, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna take the kids home. You're gonna take me to the hospital and you're gonna do blah, blah, blah. And I'm not really bossy by nature, but I would just know how to become very sort of linear and, and you know be able right. to manage things, which is unlike me normally, because I'm so right brain. And so I said to my friend, we said, let's try this local hospital. And if it's really crap, let's head into town, even though it's gonna take longer. And I'll just do all my things. And it's one of the major techniques that I use is called somatic experiencing, which was created by Peter Levine. He has a famous book called Waking the Tiger. Um, He has another book, which I actually really love called In an Unspoken Voice. And it's all about the imprints and the vestigial sort of stress stuff that gets stored in our nervous systems that we don't realize as humans. Animals will shake it all off in the wild and we as humans just store it. And that's what really they think is what the trauma symptoms go on to be caused by is all of the cortisol and adrenaline that we're storing in our bodies that we haven't found a way to shake off so knowing that i had this sort of shock event that had happened with my finger i just started to use the techniques which is to just primarily you're just going into the viscera and just scanning what's happening in your body in the way of just basic sensation and once you start scanning that what's really happening how do you scan that well, you just notice. So, if I just sort of scan my body right now and notice what sensations I feel, I notice that overall I'm pretty hot cuz I What are you doing?
0: <laughs> just playing. <laughs> what, you, you said you were scanning. I, these are my X-ray specs. I'm just listening. Got
1: it. What are you seeing, Brian? When you're the a scanner glasses, what's happening?
0: Ooh, there's a there's an aura there.
1: <laughs> uh, do I look smarter with my glasses on?
0: Well, very, very professorial, yes ma'am.
1: Okay, Um, especially when I have to talk about all this science shit. That's the hardest thing about being extremely right-brained. I know all the theory, but then sometimes when I have to get it into sort of sound bites, it's challenging. But basically, all you're doing is just sort of noticing in your body what's happening in the moment without judgment. And what's really interesting about this trauma work is it's actually sort of neurologically impossible in a moment, not in life in general, but in a moment for both curiosity and trauma to exist in the same moment. So we just go... I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, so, I... so we guide clients to just track what's happening in their bodies. Like I may feel a wave of heat come over me. I might feel some pain somewhere in my body. Maybe my mouth goes dry. And we just ask people to just, just give a little inventory with curiosity as to what's happening in their body in the moment. So when I was sitting in the car with you know trying to hold my finger together, I just started doing, you know, just tracking what was going on in my body. And I would notice there's two main categories. There's unpleasant sensation, and then there's stuff that you can tolerate. And so with these two categories, you know, some of it's the, the trapped energy that's causing you stress. And if you can focus on that, it'll move through and then you're going to feel better. So I was just doing that sort of basic work. And then I said to my one of my best friends who was driving me, I said, I've managed to downregulate so successfully that when we go into the ER, they're not gonna think anything's wrong with me. So I might have to get you to speak for me because the minute I start actually engaging with people, I might start to lose it and go a bit weird. <laughs> so I'll just keep myself going the way I'm doing this with the you know pain management and just sort of tracking sensation. And and I might need you to talk. She goes, okay, she takes a while to park the car and I'm standing in this line of no one. I'm literally the only person in the line and they're making me stand behind the line and I'm keeping it together and I'm keeping it together. And my friend comes in and says, what's going on? I said, they're just making me stand behind the line. And I started to go into nervous laughter and started giggling like a maniac. And, and then the woman said, all right, all right, we'll see you. And she thought I had a splinter in my hand, right? And because these te- techniques are so successful, she had no idea what was really going on. And that's what really excites me about you know Western medicine and the implications of these sorts of tools, because when people are trained in this, in the ER and first responders, far fewer medical interventions have to occur. The body reorganizes on its own. We don't have, we're we're not sedated as much as we used to be when we use these techniques. You know, and so she opened up the bandage, he goes, let's take a look at that. And one of the other nurses said, should we put her in trauma one? And she went, oh dear God, no, that's a partial to full amputation. Take her into trauma 10 immediately.
0: (laughs) Well, but what you say about uh, in the moment, yeah. And, I, and I've got to tell you, I've, I've kind of, I've experienced that myself. Like when I was covering a war, you know, yeah. you, you're part of your mind is thinking uh, I'm getting shot at. And the other part is thinking, holy crap, I'm getting shot at. And right. so, but you're, it, and I've, and I don't know, I, I, the experience of time kind of slowing down and, and you kind of grasp things and as they're happening, you're reacting to them Logically, uh, although you're also having an emotional experience about it elsewhere. Does that, does that make sense to you?
1: Completely. And I would say probably scientifically. Maybe I'll put on my glasses so everyone believes me and I sound more like I know what I'm talking about. No, um, I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in good company. Excellent.
0: Um, you fine.
1: <laughs> when we get triggered or traumatized or something shocking happens, we get amygdala hijacked. And what's happened, the the amygdala is sort of towards, you know, it's one of the more primitive parts of the brain. It's not the most primitive part, but it actually, it's communicating with our- Well,
0: well, well, with men, everything's a primitive part, but that's-
1: (laughs) Well, I think, I mean, what we're seeing in the collective right now, it's a really relevant conversation because I think we've ignored the wild parts of us that would stop us from getting traumatized. And as a result of going through this very patrician, patriarchal, post-Victorian kind of austerity, We now get more traumatized, I think, because we don't go into our wildness. We don't check in with our bodies. Therapy is normally from the neck up.
0: I'll check into my wildness. (laughs) I'll hop on the dirt bike.
1: (laughs) Yes, but I mean, and doing it, you know, it's, I think one of the catchphrases we use in our work is having a beginner's mind, but with adult responsibility. So Ah. sometimes, sometimes we want to do things that are, you know, rebellious to act out so that we can feel sort of wild, but we need to make sure we're doing it in a responsible container. You know, I have kids and I need to be responsible for them. So a lot of the choices I make, I have to do it based on. What's really gonna make me feel grounded and connected and experiencing my viscera? And what you what you describe in those in those war situations, we're going into, you know, we move out of normal orienting. You know, normal orienting, we're walking down the street and our body's telling us through proprioception and interception that everything's fine. But as soon as we hear a weird noise, let's say just in a normal situation, not in a war zone, we're gonna pause and a different part of our system starts to kick in, our senses start to heighten, to then decide from that point, are we actually in danger? Is there a discernible threat or are we okay? And from that moment on, all of these hormones start recruiting, certain muscle groups in our body start recruiting to help us do the thing that's gonna take us to safety. And for humans, more often than not, the best option is gonna be fleeing, right? So when you talk about fight or flight, there's a couple more responses, right? Mine's
0: usually fight,
1: but... Right, but here you go. So there's, and we've been seeing, but that's been really healthy fight response in you because you were one of the few people doing your job over the last four years with this last administration. Well, thank you. Being being in a sort of, you had healthy aggression and you weren't giving up and you weren't going into learnt hopelessness or helplessness and you weren't getting sucked into the narrative. You weren't being amygdala hijacked. You stayed on task and you refused to be bullied. And that's really hard to do. So, you have regulation in your nervous system somehow that allows you to just stay with the predator and stop drugs. With- <laughs> <It's>,
0: <laughs> hallucinogens, you know, <laughs> caffeine. <laughs> they
1: really work.
0: <laughs> they do. Um, well, how are you dealing? How are you applying this in dealing with people who are suffering because of COVID?
1: So I do sort of basic coaching with people and it's all autonomy and sort of agency based. We're wanting to engender in the other person the ability to do this on their own, right? So I will teach them and it's a quick process how to scan their body for sensation, what to notice when certain sensations come up and how to gain a vocabulary and understanding in the difference between the two essential groups of sensation. If we're feeling something unpleasant or contracted, that's some kind of trauma energy, for want of a better term, right. to move through that's been trapped. And then there may be other sensations like tingles or yawn or laughter that are sort of more part of the parasympathetic side of the nervous system. So I teach them how to notice the difference and then they're able to flush stuff through without re-traumatizing and going into too much of the story. And what happens is, you know. I work with what presents. So if a journalist says to me, oh my God, I'm so stressed out and I have to go to work today. And the story that we're breaking triggers me personally because it's so much a part of my own personal wounds from my past and I don't know what to do because my mouth goes dry, my heart races, and I don't know if I'm gonna be able to speak on camera today. Then we will process those symptoms that are presenting in that moment before they go on camera and help them reorganize the nervous system. And often what will happen is without even going into the story from the past, um, imagery or something will come up that allows the person to go, oh, this is what happened. The reason why I'm still stressed about it is because when it happened the first time, I never got a chance to speak
0: up. And you've worked with reporters and journalists.
1: Yeah, reporters, journalists, um, celebrities, actors, high, you know, people who are ex Olympic athletes who are in the corporate sector and wonder why they're miserable. (laughs)
0: <laughs> i like that face yeah <laughs> why are you miserable
1: <laughs> oh, it's so weird i can't it's, what a puzzle i'm like do you really want to pay me whatever it is an hour to
0: figure this one out <laughs> <laughs> i'll take your money but it'll be quick <laughs> yep <laughs> so what do you tell people when they when they come to you looking for for help relieving stress or how, how do they come to you
1: it really depends. It's just what what's happening in the moment. I mean, you can do therapy for years and not move the needle very far in your life in terms of getting more high functioning. But talk therapy could be really helpful to understand the fina- the dynamics of your family system that you grew up with and pathology, all that stuff. Diagnosis can be really crucial in talk therapy. Um, but if you actually have trauma, what's happening is you need a ground up approach. You need something that actually works with the body rather than the mind. Because if we could fix everything in the mind, we would have done that. We're all, the people I work with are super intelligent and they know what their problems are most of the time, but they don't know why they're getting dysfunctional in a particular room or a particular moment. Or they might be able to say, you know, you know who from the last presidency is really triggering me. I mean, what what doesn't he trigger, right? I
0: mean, he's the perfect well, in my case, it got, it, 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 in the White House, it got to be very difficult just to even, you know, when I was a kid and, and I grew up, it was like, wow, this is the White House. And the first time I walked in there, it was like, wow, I'm, I'm at the White House. There's so much history. This is so cool. And I always looked forward to walking into that place. Yeah. Um, not so much. <laughs> the last four years, I walked into, you know, the West Wing and I'd usually be going Jesus Christ, what are they going to say today is going to piss me off. <laughs> and, and that's how I, you know, uh, I know they're going to lie to me. What are they going to tell me today?
1: <laughs> what was really interesting, because you know, you saw the problem in the media in general, and he was just being enabled because everyone was trying to do this both sides bullshit, which doesn't apply when you have a dictator, right?
0: Right. Well, and part of our problem is, is, and you know, I respect you know what we have to do. I respect most reporters. But what I don't respect is the idea that we have to sit there and be stenographers. And when, when we walk in there and, you know, I, I, you, there were people who are going, well, you're pushing back, you're making yourself part of the story. And I said, uh, no, he made us part of the story. I just don't like bullies. Um, and that's where I, I, you know, that that's where I broke a little bit from, you know, tradition. And that's, I think that, you know, that some people just couldn't figure it out because, I think we sometimes just have blinders on when we walk in there and do our job and we don't, we don't even listen. I mean, to what's being said. And like you said, it's the bullying that really got to me and I don't like them. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just don't like bullies.
1: Yeah. Well, I think what, what you were able to do is, is use that disappointment and, and justified rage and anger and channel it into just staying the course and doing a fantastic job and staying really present. A lot of people who, have undigested trauma around bullying are are just gonna go into a collapse response where they just can't move for days or they're not sleeping or their anxiety is off the charts because they constantly, what happens with the trigger is regardless of how long ago the actual original wound was created, something in the moment makes the amygdala feel like we're back in that space and the amygdala can't discern between space and time. So it just thinks you're back in that moment from childhood or whenever, when you had the bad experiences. And so, you know, and if we have, if we've tried in our lives in stressful situations or traumatizing situations to flee, to fight, and and then ultimately, you know, and thorn, and then if the last resort is the only thing we could do is to go into a freeze response, which humans don't like. Right. If any of those, If any of those attempts get thwarted, that's where we end up looping in an undigested, Fight, flight, fall, or freeze response later on in life because we're still playing out something that never got completed from before.
0: That makes sense to me. Uh, it, but see, my old man, when I was a kid, my dad said, uh, you know, the only way to deal with a bully is to thump him in the nose and let him know you're not going to take it. And then, so that, but that kind of led <laughs> time sort of that hasn't played out too well either. But, but, but I, I just the idea of fleeing from one I just can't I can't stomach and. That, um, and I, I don't like to see other people bullied. I, that right. one bothers me too.
1: Right, and, and so we're, go- we're all going through an unlearning and a relearning because I think, you know, the way we parent, the way I talk to my teenage boys now, I'm having to have these really serious conversations about rape culture and how it's created and what mm-hmm. their role is in that and what they, you know, they'll start singing hip hop and I'll go, you're white. <laughs> um. <laughs> and, they, and they're not saying the n-word but they still they you know there's just a lot of appropriation going on in the way they're sort of mimicking and whatever and I go let's talk about this this is your favorite song that's great you can listen to it but you don't get to talk that way even dressing in these ways it's just it's not your culture my darlings. so <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you know <clears throat> that's what our parents told us too about rock and roll hmm. that's or at least mine did they often, talk, well, my grandparents were very, very. Uh, they, I, I guess I was supposed to listen to Sinatra more than the Beatles or the Stones, but I couldn't help that. <laughs> but I, I think you're right about that part of it. I, op- appropriating, um, it, you know, I, I hate to do. I hate to divide humans up because all in all, I think that's what rich people do: is they they divide the haves from the have-nots and have right. us fighting over stuff, but there are legitimate parts of culture that you're not brought up in. And yeah. it looks kind of, well, I, you know, it looks kind of silly when you appropriate without understanding why it it became right. what it became.
1: Right, and, and just sort of know what you stand for and know what you're wearing. and Do you want to be a billboard for someone? Do you want to be a walking billboard for someone, for the man to get richer and richer? Like really be conscious about what you're doing, what you're saying, what you're communicating. And, you know to have these two boys who are born with us you know a certain amount of privilege let's
0: yeah well the- white white privilege is a thing that's i, I
1: it, is yeah. the thing. it is the thing and learning to to find our place and to not center ourselves and to be responsible and to listen more as you say that becomes part of it so i've been saying to my boys you know based on the whole bully narrative and how real it's become you know what do we have to do in ourselves to make sure that we can not flee and be present the way that you have been and fight for the people who don't feel like they have a voice and also talk to the speak people who don't have a voice and find out from them how we can be allies and how we can support them.
0: How do you do that?
1: I think representation is really important. So for me, um, with my clients, I want them to feel really represented in the room. So, you know, I might, you know, a a woman may come to me who's melanated and she may say, um, you know, I'd love to work with you. I love the technique, I love the sound of this. And I would say, well, would you prefer to work with someone who comes from the same cultural background as you? Because they will have a different nervous system. And I want you to co-regulate with someone who really gets you in the deepest, most non-verbal way possible, because most of our trauma starts pre-verbal when we, you know, when we're infants.
0: Yeah, that's true, yeah.
1: So how can we create a sacred container for someone that creates the ultimate feeling of relative safety for them. Cause we can't guarantee complete safety for anyone, but relative safety is something that we can constantly negotiate. So with my kids, I just, am always pointing out, you know, what you just said then, that is it. Like though, I mean, they've come in and said things like, did you know that if women drink pineapple juice, their vaginas taste better?
0: Say, so, uh, wh- what, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, <laughs> time out, what? <laughs>
1: And I, guess, I mean, my kids, you know, turning 16 this year and I'll be like, all right, let's talk about this. I said, he, he,
0: wait, uh, what wait, what?
1: what? <laughs> I'm like, first of all, who told you that vaginas smell and taste bad? Yeah.
0: well, <laughs> I, I don't even know where to go with that.
1: It's right? important because this is all of these stereotypes and sort of really disadvantageous, Um, concepts start to perpetrate in the culture around the feminine and around women and around gender and you know, where the heck did that come from? Is it from TikTok? Where is my son getting this from? So, I said, well, you know, growing up when I was becoming sexually active in the the mid-90s, I think it was, um, we would hear boys say that they would drink pineapple juice because it was supposed to make their sperm taste better and I was like, well, who's, what are we doing with the sperm that they need to drink the pineapple juice because I was still a virgin and not really getting it.
0: But you're I talking just, to your boys I, about, I, but first of all, I got, I love that, that you're able to talk to your boys, your teenage boys about that, because that's I a think, difficult t- I
1: think we have to, because, well, first of all, not have to, I think we have to create enough safety that they feel safe enough to ask the questions. I agree with that. I, I do this not to pinch, and I, then I also allow them to set a boundary every time about every discussion. Well, do you want to continue having this discussion with me, your mother, or do you want me to find someone that you feel comfortable having the rest of the I think the crucial thing with kids and, and all of these discussions around sexuality and sensuality and rape culture and consent, if we are not creating a safe place for them to talk about any of it at home. Well yeah. Who who's teaching them? And right now, who's teaching them is TikTok? Well, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. TikTok, YouTube, Twitter. Facebook, all of them are. Every every I app on your, on your... on uh, and, your, And that's so much different from when I, or even you were uh, younger. I mean, it, it's not... I mean, all of that has come up so quickly, but having uh, a parent, I know we're branching off a little bit, but having a parent involved in a child's life, to me, I think one of the worst things my generation did was parenting. I think we didn't do a very good job at it. I think um, there are many kids who just... Don't have parents and you know I, I coached uh, football for many years and and, and ran a, a youth program and the number of. Uh, kids who just didn't have parenting was phenomenal to me from uh, and through all social strata I mean from the poorest to the richest didn't matter the color skin didn't matter the religion, it was just that parents weren't parenting. And
1: And I think, you know, there was this idea that the kids when, you know, it became this government, you know, law that kids had to go to school. Okay, well, while they're at school, we'll make the assumption that they're learning what they need to learn to be in the world. That's not the case. I mean, the amount of bullying.
0: Well, that's where bullying starts.
1: That's right. And it becomes yeah. this very learned cultural jungle law behavior. And I think that's what we're having to look at and dismantle. The Lord of the
0: fly shit is what a, yeah. Totally.
1: totally. And so how, and I, I personally believe because I coach kids who are on the spectrum and have ADD and stuff like that. And cause I do myself. And I really think that a lot of these spectrum symptoms are either. You're, you're on
0: the spectrum or you have ADD.
1: I have ADD, which is at the start of the spectrum.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I mean, but we're not autism. Correct. Yeah. Correct.
1: Okay. But in the modalities in which I work, ADD is considered to be on a spectrum that then that then includes autism and Asperger's. And-
0: uh, I my 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 brother, my aunt, I, I have autism in the family, and it seems like everybody in my family is on <laughs> on ADD medicine, but me, I just drink heavily. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's hallucinogen. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> right,
1: not really. Just kidding. Hey, what's over there? Let's go to another. Hey,
0: squirrel. But um,
1: I really believe, and and my colleagues and a lot of my mentors believe that really when you unpack it and think about it, ADD, certainly I can't speak for autism and Asperger's, but I'd love to speak to people who experience it in their own lives um, and within themselves. But um, I, I think they have a trauma base. When you think about what ADD is, it's sort of like this cognitive disorganization. It's maladaption. And we're really super good at doing certain things. We're good at hyper focus. Why? Well, because when you think about trauma and being frightened and walking on eggshells, there's a part of your brain that you were describing at the beginning of our discussion, like, holy shit, I'm in a war zone, but also, oh, I'm in a war zone and now I'm gonna be able to act as if everything's okay. It's sort of that part of the brain that gets trained with ADD in the childhood environment to survive and function. But then when the threat isn't around, we procrastinate because there's nothing, there's no gun to our heads.
0: That's, yeah, I can relate to that, but, I also the thing about in the moment I, I just remember like in a war or even when I was dealing with my dad's death I I you know I, he he died I was holding his hand when he died and then I I I remember everyone around me seemed to be falling apart but I I knew I just had to march through certain things the funeral the prep the this the that and I just marched through it and then afterwards I could reflect but I didn't have it, in the, and that's the same thing in the war zone. I mean, uh, you know, I, you, the landmines, the, you know, people shooting at you, you're, I'm walking through it. How, uh, I knew I had to do certain things in order to get through it, and, and afterwards, I was able to go, holy shit, I will not do that.
1: <laughs> and I do that too. Like, I, I didn't realize I was a big grief delayer, and now I'm not, but I just think our culture just doesn't know how to process grief unless it's through religion and that can be really austere and also the meaning making is prescribed you don't get to cultivate your own meaning about your loved one's passing and so if someone if you are in pain and you say oh, i'm in so much pain today about my dad and then i suddenly go well as you know they're in a better place and it's yeah. really good for him you're like yuck that's not empathy i want you to acknowledge my pain about me missing my dad because he was my best friend and i want to fucking talk to him today right right that's what we need that doesn't seem very spiritual is to meet the person in their pain. or well, it doesn't seem very religious. To meet the person- I think it's
0: more pain. religious, actually. I, I, think,
1: I, I think it's more spiritual. Yeah, there you
0: go, more spiritual. I, I agree, but well, uh, religion yeah. is, yeah. Uh, there was the John Lennon saying, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. So I think that uh, a lot of religion is that. Uh, I think it's, uh, well, I've seen it as the cause of a lot of conflict,
1: but. Yes, a lot of conflict and a lot of suffering, and it's supposed to help end suffering or ease suffering. So for the people that have managed to have a positive relationship with religion, I'm all for it. Because if it's helping them to be a better version of themselves, and it's not at the expense of anyone else's suffering, then that's a really great resource for them. And yes.
0: Then, you know, However, if, if they use it as, as an instrument by which to subjugate or inflict pain upon others, that's where I, I'm off that boat. Great. Right
1: oh yeah, completely, you know, and there's, there's, you know, I'm just watching Leah Rimini and Mike Rinder's documentary series about Scientology, you know, yes. the, it's wild to see how much the, the degree to which people suffer when they're in that, that is, you know, associated with, or stuck in that, that uh, religion.
0: Well, last thing before we go to break, I'll say this about Scientology and watching the Trump, regime and action i don't see any difference in the grift right it's right. a different it's a difference of words it's a difference of of terminology but it's the same grift and it's the same con
1: yeah and it's and it's, all yeah. about
0: subjugating yourself to someone else
1: yeah that's right and gaslighting is the key tool to sort of oh. it's that and you know when i was a kid it's really interesting i think it's always been my destiny for want of a better word to to sort of dismantle the gaslighting thing because as a kid my favorite book that I identified with the most was The Emperor's New Clothes because I felt the whole time like everyone else was under this weird mass delusional spell and I was like but he's an idiot and he doesn't know what he's talking about (laughs) and I would get in trouble if I said that stuff
0: (laughs) so you've been to my family reunions I got it (laughs) that's Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I agree with that. That's, uh, and the thing was, is when you're aware of what, what I find difficult is when you're aware of the grift and others aren't, it's damn near impossible to get them to see the light. I, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not very, I just try to put facts out there. My whole thing, my whole life is I want to know. I want to know as much as I can know. Yeah. And so to know, I have to be able to communicate. And part of my process in communicating is finding facts and disseminating them to others. And if you ask me what I think, and if I'm paid to give you my opinion, I'll go, well, these are the facts, and this is why I think that. But I'm always open to new facts. I mean, you know, that would change... You know everyone pluto is you know the ninth planet not anymore okay fine Ooh. yeah moving on so <laughs> but i mean you assemble you assemble new facts into your narrative you don't stay frozen but it's the idea of dis- deciding what is a fact and isn't and if you're under the spell of of trump or <clears throat> a religion or any or any other con it's, and I'm not saying that all religions are, con- well, most of them, but, 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 it, but, but it, it's, it's, Dan, I found it as a communicator, the most frustrating thing for me is to get people to reassess those facts and say, all right, look, this really wasn't a fact. You need to look at it differently.
1: Right, but the, I think the biggest thing about the grift is you're finding the predator is finding that place where they can permeate your boundaries where there are parts of your boundaries that are a little bit loose, where you may not even be conscious of them. look at that lovely, sweaty armpit. Um,
0: (laughs) Well, I'm not gonna ask about the pineapple then.
1: (laughs) It sounds pretty good, but I do wear herbal deodorant, and that's a bit of a disaster. (laughs) I'm just waiting for my good friends to tell me, but I haven't been around them in so long.
0: (laughs) Well, I know, right? Why do you think I'm wearing a black shirt? Hey, now. (laughs) So uh, listen, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, I'd love to talk a little bit about um, the other way you're involved in the greater community, and that's in acting and science fiction. So so stick around, and we'll be right back. Well, time to pay the bills, folks. And this one, I I don't mind doing. (laughs) Actually, I've actually used this. If this 2020 holiday season feels like it's been a long time, come and make it worth the wait with Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks makes the perfect gift for family and friends or to treat yourself, all shipped directly to your door. They offer everything you need to bring families together for a delicious holiday feast. Okay, or maybe not, maybe just a delicious festival. Uh, their deluxe grillers assortment package includes a variety of entrees, sides, and desserts. Right now, you can get this mouth-watering package. I've never actually seen a mouth of water. Well, well, anyway, plus four free burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. And we all need a good meat thermometer and exclusive price only available to uh, our listeners. So go to omahasteaks.com and enter the code question into the search bar. Get a jump on gift shopping with Omaha Steaks. You know, Omaha Steaks isn't just a steak. It, it's actually a, a lot of them. It's a fantastic gift and a safe way to share the joy of the season with Omaha Steaks, guaranteed quality and safety with every order. <laughs> order the deluxe Grillers Assortment package today, and you'll receive four free Omaha Steak Burgers and a free digital meat thermometer. That's just a great straight line I won't use. When you go to omahasteaks.com and type question in the search bar, that's omahasteaks.com and type Question, and if you need to spell it as Q U E S T I O N, in the search bar, and you'll shop for the best gourmet gifts of the season. I, I like a good raw steak, so uh, enjoy it. It is a lot of fun. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host Brian Carman with us today is actress Claudia Black, who's. Uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, stars of, uh, you know, I, I confess Stargate SG one was a, you know, I'll sit and binge watch it to this day. Okay. Um, it's so, you know, it kind of takes you, what I like about the show is it takes you out of your known universe and places you somewhere else. And sometimes in my head, it's great to be somewhere else, but.
1: <laughs> for everyone, for everyone, it's just some of us have more healthy ways of, go, of getting there and then making sure we come back. So other people just seem to disappear and.
0: Well, one of the things that you said the other day when we were uh, texting back and forth was, yeah, and I, I'm going to paraphrase, but it was science fiction can help save the world. <laughs> How so?
1: That's a little hyperbolic, Brian. I don't know if I said that entirely. No, just kidding. Um, I think.
0: I think. I think uh, yeah, I think I, I interpreted it, but I, I do believe that you you were you were talking about what what was wrong with us because we both enjoy science fiction and what it brings to the world, and it, I think it does help illuminate things without putting us in them, but I didn't want to put words in your mouth. Well,
1: no, but I think, thank you. I think that science fiction has a lot of different elements that as it began was the ugly stepchild of Hollywood because the budgets were never there to fully realize these worlds. And now that CGI has become so sophisticated, science fiction has become cool, but there's not everybody can tell those stories, I don't think. And what I love about the sophisticated science fiction stories is that they are philosophical they are thoughtful, that they put humanity under the microscope. And, you know, it became an important tool in the 50s to start bringing in science fiction narratives to help people align against a common enemy because metaphorically communism was this huge threat to capitalism Um, and helping people to rally around something becomes this sort of, you know, it's a very galvanizing force. And what I like is this idea of, you know, whenever we're traumatized, whenever we're trying to fit in, we sort of, we get kicked out of belonging in our tribes and in our cultures and, you know, the way humans have existed through time and belonging is so crucial. But now we have these sort of disastrous nuclear families where we only have two imprints if we have two parents or a small community, depending on who we're around, from whom we can sort of gather information about what a man is or what a woman is or what someone who's, who's um, Non, non-binary non is and depending on where we live we might have great luck with that so we can you know be able to express who we really are very quickly but if we don't have that opportunity we're very limited in what we can offer the culture as a human right. and I love, I love any stories like Hindu myths are interesting mythology is fascinating because what it allows us to do is look at archetypes and right. then in a fantasy way, try on those archetypes and imagine, you know, who would I be, what would I be like if I could take that, Mm. that energy of Xena, Warrior Princess into this work meeting? Like, can I channel her? (laughs) Parts of her that make her so badass and can I, you know, or can I take this particular character, you know, Picard, he's such a mensch, how can I take that into this really difficult, you know, discussion that I have to have with someone? And those things, we get to try that on, so there's there's that value and I just... You know, I, for me as a woman, I get to play interesting, flawed, angry women. I've been paid for my anger for twenty years, and that was trauma that I didn't know I had. You know, but it's and at first, you know, I look at it now and it's like equal opportunities. I've a lot of
0: trauma because you played it very well.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Um, but you, you, you know, turn your broken, take your t- broken heart and turn it into art, right? Right but there were these characters that just chose me. And that's a question you have to kind of ask as an actor. That's a good question. you know. Just ask the question and maybe you won't get an answer, but why did this character choose me?
0: Well, what you say about, there was um, the infamous thing from uh, Nichelle Nichols from Star Trek who said that she was actually at one point in time thinking of leaving Star Trek. And then it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, no, you can't leave because we're here now because of you. They, they can't undo the fact that there's a black person in the future who's, you know, who's right. higher power. And, and it was Whoopi Goldberg who said that she saw that as a kid growing up and said, look, mom, we're, yep. we're in space. Yep. So it, it speaks to the human condition. But it's always it takes you with the fiction, I think, takes you away from the acute pain of the moment mm-hmm. and put you in and lets you look at it you know, visually askew from, from where you are. Yeah.
1: And I mean, the way that I work, that makes sense. Absolutely. And I'm obsessed with human potential and um, what take, what kicks us out of it, what gets us, you know, what stops us and limits us as humans and why aren't we evolving and why is, why do people experience so much struggle in long-term relationships and marriages and are they outdated? And you, you're a great example of marriage when it works and when, you know, two people sort of, you know,
0: well, our, that's our, because i know who the boss is and it ain't me <laughs> i've seen the boss's job i don't want it <laughs> i'll be and the pilot. Know, there,
1: there are certain spiritualities where they say that it is the, the role of the feminine not the female but the feminine in in all of us it's the it's the role of the feminine to lead the masculine energy because masculine energy is productive and it's the heat of the universe in sort of philosophic terms And the feminine is actually the cool, dark mystery of the universe. It's not really- Oh,
0: I agree with that. (laughs) And I like a mystery.
1: (laughs) And and so so that's great because you provide this great container for her to be everything that she is, for your partner to be everything she is. And you allow yourself to be led by her. As you say, she's the boss and you don't want the job. So you guys have a contract. And even if that, you know, if the contract was different between two other people, as long as people are in agreement about what their contract is in their relationship and how they relate to each other, it's nobody else's business what they get up to, and you
0: know. Bingo, and it's nobody else's, and that's why I get all upset when I walk in. One of the things that really hacked me off, and one of the things I liked about science fiction is in taking us out of our world to look at our world. You know, it. it when I look at people who get pissed off at people's sexuality or their religion, and it's like, you know, I I remember having someone interview with me one time for a job, and. As she sat down, I said, "You, you, you seem very nervous. Are you okay?" And she said, "This is my first time ever interviewing as a female." And I, I said, "Oh well," and, and she goes, "Does that bother you?" And I go, I, "I'm already married. I don't care what your sexuality is." <laughs> and she says, "I think I found a home." And I said, "Look, all I care about is your—is can you do the job?" Mm-hmm. And I, and 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 I find it. Really repulsive to me personally that people, you know, it, it it's this mindset that, you know, if you're not, I don't know, doing it missionary style at night with a pilgrim uniform on and it's male and female, there's, you know, there's something wrong with it. I don't care. Or, only...
1: or if you're really lucky and you're Jewish like me, it's through a hole in a sheet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no.
0: oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Mazel tov.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> well, my,
0: my, my, when I was growing up that was the secret my uh my grandmother my, she because I was raised Catholic mm-hmm. and my mother's mother uh we called her granny she came to me one time and she goes honey the secret in the family is I'm Jewish and Hi. I do know uh, I think the matzo ball soup and the fact that you keep calling me bubala gave it away a long time ago, Granny. <laughs>
1: the accent, so the hand gestures. Yeah, the hand gestures. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, this and is she the- wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> but besides that, no, 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 no clues.
0: No clues, I don't <laughs> uh, you
1: know. as a kid in Australia, I mean, my parents thankfully were very progressive for their time, and they. That we were part of a liberal show which is I think is that reform here it's just the more prepared. yeah reform yeah and and you know my probably my most halcyon days until recently were um or more recently um was in kindy because I just I loved the experience and it, it ended up actually being the kindy that was turned out it was sort of connected to the little temple that we went to but I didn't notice the the religion aspect of it except on Fridays when the cantor would come and break bread and you know, whatever, we'd have some grape juice or whatever. But um, when we were invited to a bar mitzvah, someone in my family, one of my cousins or something, we went to the great synagogue in the center of the city of Sydney and um, and we had to sit upstairs. And I said to my mom, what's going on? And she said, they separate the men from the women. And I was like, what? Mm. And from that moment on, my heart was broken. And I was like, I can't, I can't be a part of this religion, just knowing that that exists and that people from this lineage that's how they they run things as a as a budding raging feminist I couldn't tolerate it but as I've gotten older I've learned to sort of have a greater capacity for nuance um and so we sort of take the bits that work and leave the bits that don't I guess yeah that's well that's
0: what they call me a cafeteria Catholic and I go to the cafeteria and take what I want out and one of the things I refuse to take out of Catholic you know someone asked me one time what would you give up for Lent and I said Catholicism
1: (laughs) The best thing for your mental health,
0: probably. Yes. Well, I mean, you, when you are part of a religion, when they walk in and they talk about treating everybody the same and, and you know, uh, be a good Christian and turn the other cheek. Um, and then you go out in the parking lot and people are fighting with each other just to get out of the parking lot. Or when they yes. say, you know, it's uh, you have to tolerate what we believe, but you have to believe what we, our toleration means you have to do what we want you to do.
1: Exactly. it's a one-way door there's no sort of aut- autonomy I, that or, bothers
0: me to no end and also I, I
1: mean this concept i think what was really nice about some of the new age stuff that was coming in i mean in 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 the yoga lineages originally it was austere and it was patriarchal and women weren't allowed to practice yoga and then these other lineages started to break off and away and say well why can't you know householders weren't allowed to practice yoga and you were just a male renunciate and that was your sole purpose was to, in that incarnation, just to to keep praying and meditating and practicing yoga or practicing the yoga first and then meditating. Um, and so, you know, in these tantric lineages that came in, it became open, these tools for transformation and healing became available to more people, but then they became misappropriated. So then we end up with these really gross gurus who come to town and are really highly abusive, but they create a one-way door where the rule is you're never supposed to speak ill of a guru because it's bad karma.
0: Donald Trump, that's the right. same thing.
1: It is the same grift. It's a one way yeah. mirror. It's a one way door. It's, we create all the rules. There's a huge power differential um, that you're never going to really, you know, overcome. And we're gonna, we're gonna abuse you and manipulate you and take advantage. That's really the game.
0: Yeah, and it is, it is. And a lot of people don't see it. I mean, I, and it can be under the guise of religion. It can be the used car salesman. It could be a politician. but they buy into it and then, and then they're gone. Yeah.
1: And I, I think reading limited stuff that I've read about, you know, uh, cult specialists, it's going to take time, obviously for this to unpack. And I think from what I've read, they have to come to their own, it's on their own timeline. You can't convince people they have to suddenly have a moment where they're like, Oh God, this is bad. You know, it's comes close enough to home that I'm now having my own personal experience of why this is, you know this is maladaptive and this is toxic and then that's what sort of wakes something up in them and they start to be open to reprogramming or deprogramming
0: well um, we we kind of got off subject there but I, and i, I don't thought, mind but no, no no
1: no i always go off subject yeah
0: that's okay i do too uh, especially when it's it, it's a good conversation you'll go off you'll do that um yeah. but i want. what is your favorite role what's the what, what was your favorite role so far
1: it's like a mother picking favorites, but I do have cu- a couple of really seminal roles that have been really life-shaping or life-changing in whatever way. So, I mean, playing Aaron Son in Farscape was just an extraordinary yes. opportunity. Um, I was going through, I didn't know at the time. So I have really sort of interesting to me now, I guess, latent trauma um, from my early twenties, but I, I, I didn't know I had it. So when I, my career started to really take off, There was one role I played which was huge for me on a show, an Australian show called Good Guys, Bad Guys. Mm. And I played a a transgender woman. And no one would go near the role. And I was like, this is amazing. This is a real privilege. And at the time they weren't weren't creating spaces where actors who were transgender felt safe to come forward and play those roles. And the culture just wasn't there yet. absent that, you know, they were looking for actors who felt comfortable to to, to take it on. And I, I it was a real career changing role for me. And then um, and then yeah, Farscape. And I, I was getting I was becoming more traumatized while I was filming Farscape. And then on a press junket got stuck for Farscape, got stuck in New York on 9 oh and then two weeks later, when we finally got out of New York, because the people who were running the show just sort of lost their minds and didn't know how to get their two lead actors out of off Manhattan. So we were sort of left to, to our own devices. So I finally was able to get home once they opened up the airports. And then, you know, that the week that I arrived, I met the man that I married on the dance floor. And that was that. And it just the the amount of trauma that was created for me in my life as a result of not knowing that I was traumatised, so sort of bonding with people from a place of PTSD and not knowing has has shaped my life so significantly. And what was interesting about the Vala role, you know, there was a lot of trauma coming in as a result of that door being opened from Farscape. So I just went, I was like, I'm not going to do any more science fiction for a while because it's not being taken that seriously. And even though I love doing Farscape, they offered me the role on Stargate as a, as a guest role. And I was like, you know what? I want to do some comedy. So if it's coming in, which is my original roots, like musical theater right. and comedy, I was like, let's take this role. That's it's all, like-
0: all of our roots. are you kidding? <laughs> right. you, know. Yeah. Right. I'm telling you, you know, it's a tough room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Sullivan>. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I actually, I didn't even train. I didn't train formally as an actor and I had an amazingly privileged high school experience in this school where the arts program was so incredible but that was my foundational training for being uh,
0: mine school. too for it was uh, yeah I had a great uh, a director in high school who directed me in a couple of things and I, I I've always loved the theater but
1: yeah.
0: I, I was I was the, also the the communications nerd and a science nerd so
1: amazing <laughs> so
0: but uh and a football player and I never fit into any of those groups
1: so I was a similar kid like I couldn't get into it I didn't want to be in a clique because I didn't right
0: I couldn't get into one because they made me sick
1: well yeah exactly I was exactly the same and I ended up ended up hanging out with much older kids and I was a weirdo you know and I was just so immersed in this world of what the environment could offer me that I had a school career and so I was like wow, this is amazing. You mean I get to do all the things I'm interested in for free all the time at school and never go home? Yes, please.
0: There you go. Um, <laughs> so Val, v- Vala from Stargate. Yeah.
1: So, so, you know, I didn't necessarily, I've never really known what I was doing, when I would audition for these things, but I was like, ah, I could do this in my sleep. So when the Vala thing came along, it was strategic for me because I was working, talk about lack of equality in wages. I was earning about a fifth or a tenth of what my co-star was earning on Fastgate. So I wasn't able to really feel safe to invest in property because real estate in Australia has always been so expensive, especially Sydney. So I was like, oh, let's just save it and put it in a bank account and travel and whatever. And, um, but it really wasn't a, an enough of a lump sum to really do something really significant with because each year we thought the show was going to get canceled and I didn't have any job security as actors normally don't. And then, so then when the Vala thing came along, I was like, wow, they're actually giving me a proper American actor quote for this this will mean that when I go over to America, I'm gonna be treated like an American actor, not as an Australian. And that was really important to me. And I knew I was gonna be doing the episode, the bottle Ep pretty much just with Michael Shanks and he seemed great. And, and, um, And so we ended up just having, and I set this very specific intention. I was like, let's just make this the most fun it can be. And let's, you know, how can I serve you, Michael? That's actually what I said to him. I said, is there anything you haven't had a chance to do yet with this character? On this show that you would love to explore is there anything like that And he was just so gobsmacked that anyone was asking him this and i said just just and it's funny because it's a precursor to what i now do with clients it's like what do you want from this you know like what would be the the best thing that could happen and is there something you haven't tried or do you want to play bringing in the element of play again because we've lost so much of our innocence you know right so we hit it off andy makita was just an absolute godsend he's an amazing person an amazing director and they saw so much potential in that little bottle that Robert Cooper took us into his room and said, you know, we're not sure if we're going to get another season out of this show. So we're thinking of doing another spinoff. Would you two be interested in helming the spinoff? Wow. And that would have been really amazing, you know. That would to would fun. Do. Yeah, like real fun. <laughs> you got
0: two years on Stargate, right? Yeah. Right.
1: And I came back and forth and, you know, and, and there were a lot of privileges that they afforded me on that job too, because I was able to, um, oh, it was so bad for them. I feel so bad, but there was also real peril for me. You know, I was nursing on demand on the set and I didn't have a nurse, so I didn't know what I was doing with this newborn. And they, <laughs> they would just have to wait while I was in the trailer breastfeeding my baby. And I didn't know that he'd sort of fallen asleep and had stopped nursing because I was so sleep deprived. And they would be waiting for forty minutes, which is unheard of, until I could sort of get the baby off and go back onto set. Um, so they allowed me to sort of continue and create this, create my family and um, and explore this really medicinal character because she was just so fun and such a rebel and so irreverent.
0: Yeah, and that's what I liked about the character.
1: And and we have to be there. Have to be those people in the room that are going to say it as it is or say it as they see it and stick it to the man and. So that, that archetype I think is crucial in our culture and to be able to play her had value for me too.
0: Well, I, you know, I'm really disappointed that you didn't say that your favorite character was Vantrilla Quiver from uh, Over My Shoulder over there, uh, Pickle Rick from <laughs> Rick and Morty. Have
1: you got a Rick and Morty thing in the room?
0: Yeah, that's from my son. I told you my son is, is, is wait a minute, right
1: there. There's, oh, there he is! I didn't. Yeah. Even, I thought it was a, a
0: water bottle or something. No, it's uh, my my youngest son of the three boys. My youngest son is a huge fan of yours, just through Rick and Morty. And then I introduced him um, to to, to uh, some of your to, to your other work. And but he he loved you on Rick and Morty. And yeah. um, what do you? Uh, well, I got to ask that. How did you get involved with Rick and Morty? Because that's a that I mean that's talk about a reverent show. It's I think Dustin
1: was different. a fan of, of something I'd done. So I don't know if oh. he was a fan. I think he might've been an Uncharted fan or a Farscape fan. Maybe it was a Farscape fan. Ah. And he's so unassuming, just so cool in the room. I think he actually directed me on my first episode. He was in the booth. I mean, he's probably far too busy now. Um, I've seen him a couple of times since, um, but he's, you know, th- the fans, that I do this weird cult stuff that's not mainstream and then the most interesting people will surface. I get to meet the coolest people. You know, I had no idea you knew my work. Um, and because I've done all this weird fringe stuff.
0: Well, science fiction to me, you know, I, I, we could talk about that. We could take four hours talking about that. But I grew up and that was, you know, I was not a, a fantasy dungeon and dragons. I was hardcore science fiction fan because I liked, you know, Isaac Asimov and and being able to see a future where humanity survived and thrived past what I consider right now. And I'll just be as people get pissed when I say it, but I don't care. I I feel like we're living in a technological middle age. I mean, it's almost medieval the way we are, the way we treat religion, the way we treat, I mean, to go downtown to the white house and listen to people talk about science as if it's, as if it is a religion and it's not. And and to to uh, look down upon the scientific method and logic, you know, it, to me is a, a, anathema to existence.
1: I agree. I think it's also, you know, so many things got bifurcated during what some people refer to as the patriarchal sort of reign of humanity. And it's a cycle that's ending. And, and I don't think matriarchy is the solution. It's unity sort of consciousness. Yeah. But it's funny, when I was working with Brian Henson, he would say, you know, who of course comes from this extraordinary creative lineage with his dad, Jim Henson, and they just, when he would pitch things about Farscape, people would say, oh no, we can't do that. And Brian would say, why not? And he had to keep asking, why not? Give me right. a quick answer. Why not?
0: And why so can't, being
1: yeah. around these big thinkers, it's so important for us to think, you know, Michael Pollan says in his book, How to Change Your Mind, maybe the problem with, with the cultures and, and this idea of being outside the box is that we've always thought that there's only ever been one box. And when you start working, somehow accessing other intelligences, alien sort of mythology right. is one way of doing that, or yes. meditation or whatever, it's a way of accessing different intelligences within us and outside of us. And, um, you know, Brian would say, you know, I'm not even going to attempt to do his, his voice, but he would say, you know, I often think that if aliens came and they watched us, the thing that would make the most sense to, to them, the thing that would resonate most aliens watching us is if they saw us all dancing in a nightclub or at a rave
0: very well you know because that's an expression that's just from the heart
1: it's embodied so it's it's here and it's unity consciousness because we're hearing a beat which is vibrational and so much of what we learn about you know i
0: think it overcomes the one thing that what you what you're hinting at about different boxes what i've always sad and what I feel. And I, it was actually in a movie once that I really liked, uh, but it's fear. I think most people live their whole lives fearful of, of everything, fearful yeah. of having a thought, fearful of thinking differently from others, fearful of what happens if I take this step. And it's kind of, you know, we talk about having uh, herd immunity. I, I think often people <laughs> execute herd mentality. Uh, out, out of fear of being thought to be different or somehow exactly.
1: but, but, but the science bears out that it's not safe for someone to break from the herd because we are mammals and because we have come from this sort of creature evolution if we believe in that we happen to be one of the most sophisticated mammals so we have this sophisticated social engagement system which we lost to a great extent with the masks and everything so we lost a lot of our sophistication and nuance and people just became really primal and went into their more sort of ancient parts of the world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right.
1: But not in a pretty way and not Ooh. in a way to insult creatures who are very evolved in their herd communications. But what happens is we are co-regulating all the time. So if we have a leader who is out of regulation, if they're extremely dysregulated and really unhealthy, we all start oh, Yes, we start co-regulating to their dysfunction and their dysregulation. So the difference when you feel in your nervous system for one night, people are like, as soon as you know, the presidency changed hands, a few people would start to say, you know, oh my God, I actually slept tonight. Because when we're in that hyper-vigilant state of, of feeling constant threat to our lives, and most of us, unless we're in that top 0001 percent that were being protected by him. Um, and have that sort of white male privilege. And didn't
0: need to be protected because they are in the 0.001%. Exactly, have that
1: privilege and have have all that sort of misappropriated power. You know, most of us felt like we were legitimately under threat for the full four or five years. So how do we then train our nervous systems to realize that, that some of the threat, some of the immediate threat has gone, what we experienced was real. All of the traumatization and the the triggers, it was all real. And how are we going to, you know, one of the things that happens when we get into dysregulation is we cannot experience empathy. Amen.
0: We, we go Amen.
1: out of, We go out of the neocortex, we lose our executive function and suddenly we're in that amygdala and we're hijacked. So if the one thing we can do as leaders in our communities, if we are, is to really work on our own personal regulation and to use tools that help that because the more regulated we become, the more like the Pied Piper in a healthy way, people will start co-regulating with us. You know, people who like um, solutions-based journalism, the messages that we're putting out in the media and the way we disseminate information, you know, you're driven by the truth. Like, where are the facts? Let's get to them and let's disseminate it. That's a real service that allows people and then practically, what are we gonna do about it? So we're not just- in the thick of, oh my God, I feel hopeless. It's how we, what are we then gonna do about it? Finding ways to identify the people who have sort of positive and healthy regulation and language, but they're not being too Pollyanna. They can acknowledge, you know, the they have the capacity to sit with the difficult stuff, but also the positive stuff. So they're a container for the both, for both. That's a person that I can trust because if we're ignoring the darker aspects of humanity, We're just going to keep trying to put a band aid over them, and it's too late for that. You know, we're in a gaping wound, so it's time to really, you know,
0: add the pineapple, clean that out.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry, you and your wife can experiment on that. Get back to me and tell me if that's a thing. And then I will report back to my son and say, I personally could not give you an answer on that. I'm not thrilled about the idea of you thinking that vaginas need to taste or smell better.
0: <laughs> well, um, <I'm, laughs> you got me blushing. I tell you, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, J-A-T-Q Podcast. That's J-A-T-Q Podcast. Again, that's at J-A-T-Q Podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask a Question. I'm Brian Kerrman. I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, With me is Claudia Black. Claudia, one of the things I like to do when I get people on this show is to to ask them to tell me something you've never told anybody before.
1: Brian, I think I've done a lot of that today with you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're back on pineapple, are we? That's-
1: (laughs) I mean, we've got pineapple, we've got me sort of talking about my life crash, which I don't think I've ever really been, I've never talked about that in an interview, I don't think. But what is something that I've never told anyone before?
0: Yes. It's uh, yeah. Think about that one. Dead air. <laughs> <That's>,
1: <laughs> well, because I'm pretty, I'm pretty open. I, the things Well, that let I me put it
0: to you this way. So, so if you're um uh, if you're stranded somewhere on on the proverbial desert island, right? Who do you want with you, and what do you want to eat?
1: Ah, uh, so how many people am I allowed?
0: Just be. Who, who would you like to sp- Who would you most like to spend the time with? Living my,
1: kids, better. my kids, my kids, because they're fantastic humans. And one of them's already agreed to come live on the island with me. He's like, I'll do remote learning for university on the island with you, mama. And I was like, that's an excellent choice. How
0: old is he? 13. Ah, well, that'll change.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know he's a total kind of mama's boy. He's starting to act out a bit, which is healthy. I mean, you know, I'm allowing it. Um, my kids on and off if they want to come and go. Uh, I have a fantastic squad of very, close friends who i met in my trauma training and or trainings and they're people who just have you know they just love me unconditionally with all of my quirks and they have they've been incredible medicine for me so you know
0: yeah but you get to pick one person out of history alive dead doesn't matter who would it be
1: to be on the island with me yeah dead air again brian at least dun, dun,
0: dun.
1: Ooh, 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 ooh,
0: well what's your favorite fi- well, well what would be your meal the one meal you could have
1: yeah let's talk about food i'm jewish the people thing is difficult for me because i'm like mm-hmm. um i mean they're amazing people in history but i think they'd all get you know i think the people in mm.
0: well you can kick them off after you get done <laughs> you, you, you don't have to <laughs> keep them there yeah, i had a good time now you're gone
1: <laughs> leave and desert them on the, another part of the island what would I eat on the island? I mean, if I was being really obvious about it, just the coconuts and the fish that I find with my rudimentary spear that I've made, Brian.
0: The rudimentary uh, spear, the coconut, the pineapple, and...
1: Uh, <laughs> maybe it's like about papaya. I mean, my dream, I it's weird. I have this weird connection to Fiji, which ain't weird. Oh,
0: Fiji's beautiful.
1: But I felt this very strong connection to it from a very young age. My dad was an OBGYN and he delivered... All the kids of this couple who ran a little resort on part of an island in Fiji. Wow. And so, as a kid, as, as a gift to dad, they would let us come and stay free of a, you know, free accommodation on. And it was just like me in warm water, just sitting in this clear water with all these fish swimming by. Uh, There's nothing better for me, apparently. Um, it was just my happy place, apart from Kindy. So, I went back as an adult and was obsessed with coral we would get because we knew the people who you know worked on the island as well they would take us out on these boats and we would have a fishing cord wrapped on an old coke bottle we'd drop it over the side of the line and catch all this fish and eat it for dinner so I was having this kind of wild adventure and um, everything about it just really I just felt very at home there oddly and then as an adult just as I was turning 40 I had a very weird dream that I obviously forgot about then was like, Oh my God, we're at this amazing place that all that, my husband's family were all together. And my husband's dad at the time, my, my then husband's, sorry, mother grew up in Fiji. Wow! Um, and so we were doing this reunion there and I was like, Oh my God, I want to get my scuba diving license. And everyone was going off scuba diving. My father-in-law included. And I almost died. Wow. Ow! And I had to save to myself because it was a terrible dive. All the conditions were wrong. They didn't do the buddy system. They didn't pair us with people. The current was so strong that I wore through my tank really quickly. Um, the gauge wasn't working properly. I tried to signal to someone that I was going up because I was out of air and they didn't see me. So I was on my own. And when they put me on a piece of, someone found me and put me on a piece of coral for my safety stop because at this point I was running out of air and I couldn't discern distance, which is very common. And they stuck me on a piece of coral and the coral snapped off in my hand and I got swept away with the tide. So I didn't get a safety stop. So I started to get the bends when I got back on the boat. I had a
0: date like that once, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm stop meeting like this. Yeah, I'm telling you. <clears throat> so, so I have this weird association with VG because it was the place where I almost died, but it's also the place where I feel most alive. That's life. Wow,
0: that's, that's... all right. So uh, the other one I always like to ask, music. What would you like to listen to? You know, it's got to be rock, but which would, I mean, we could go rock or jazz or, or hip hop or, or a classic, but I'm going to stick with rock. Cause that's what my band plays. So you got to.
1: Okay, Brian, I'll get stuck on my Island with your idea of a good time. <laughs> that's we... right. That's...
0: No. Awesome.
1: Way to colonize me on that Island. Thank
0: you. <laughs> um... well, so who's your favorite rock group, I guess is the
1: rocker I mean I was a 90s kid so I grew up with Nirvana and I grew ah. up with Prodigy and I was in the mosh pit at the Prodigy and you know like but I just don't think that's sustainable for my nervous system to listen to that stuff for the rest of my life on an island so I'd like you to have a little bit of flexibility <laughs> well
0: Who's mosh pits different? can be dangerous yeah, that's
1: apart from your band and, yeah. and you- you being what you would choose to be with on the island who would be the rocker that you would you would bring to the island
0: that's a good you know i i like some well first of all i I limited it to rock because there's so much other music i like jazz and blues and and uh hell even good uh bluegrass i i can listen to and, and i and i love classical music but if it's going to be rock it's it I, I'm, I'm a beatles fan from way back so it, i would love to be able to that's one band i never got to see live that i'd love to see you know play live um,
1: yeah that probably my leanings are more towards led Zeppelin.
0: oh well yeah, but, but see i saw them
1: and i love led zeppelin I'll tell you, I have a great Robert Plant story that sort of crossed several continents and cities. Well,
0: tell it. And, and uh, you tell your uh, Robert Plant story and I'll tell you my Keith Richards story.
1: Okay. So I was hanging out. I'd done this show in Melbourne and I was 21 and very impressionable and had, there was this super cool chick who was the costume designer on the show and she took me under her wing. And so then I suddenly had a bit of a social life because I was, you know, out of town in a different city. And then we started to travel together. And so we went to, I didn't know a lot about her, but we shared sort of really cool, intimate things about our lives with each other. And we were in New York and we were on, in Soho and we'd gone to dinner at, I can't remember which one was the restaurant and which one was the bar, but there was Lucky Strike and Match. Yeah. And so we we went to the restaurant and we were having dinner and suddenly my friend sort of became catatonic. She looked like, She was having a stroke and she couldn't move her mouth and she was in real shock. And I was like, what is wrong with you? What's just happened? And she said, Croyo, Robert Plant is behind you. (laughs) And she just couldn't function. She really honestly, like her whole face slid off her bones. I was just like, I don't understand this. And I turn around and there, all I could see was the blonde hair that actually looked quite a bit like mine right now the leather pants and whatever. And then he turned his face around and I was like, what, that aging hippie behind me? And she goes, he's my God, he's an idol, he's an idol. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And then the check came and we left and we were walking, and they left before us actually, they got the check before us. We were walking across the street and this guy, and I was feeling all, you know, cheeky because I'd just done this show in Australia, but not very serious about expecting to be recognized. And this guy stopped us and said, oh my God, oh, my God, do you have any idea who just walked across the street? And I said, yes, I know, Robert Plant. Do you have any idea who you're talking to right now? (laughs) You know, we go into the bar, we see him, I try to introduce her. She's catatonic, she will not move, I cannot introduce her. And then we end up in all these different cities, and we end up in the same cities where Robert Plant is.
0: That's funny.
1: So finally, we're in Sydney, and they're doing that amazing tour with the Egyptian Orchestra of the remasters. Right, And Jimmy Page is there with him and they're they're on the steps of this, we're in a club, we see them there, I try to introduce her, she says no, and she loses it again, I'm like, oh, for God's sake, this is ridiculous, I want her to have a chat with Robert Plant. We go down the stairs and suddenly there's all these people flocked around Robert Plant and there's this guy standing by just sort of watching and I knew he was part of their crew, part of the, you know, whatever, and the entourage. And I was standing there and I said, he said something about being, you know, a, knowing Robert. He, it ended up he was their tour manager. I think his name was um, Robert Black. And I said, you know, my friend is a huge fan of, of Robert's and uh, she'd really love to meet him. And he said, I can make that happen. And I told him the story about New York and telling him, "You know, do you have any idea who you're talking to right now? And he said, that's hilarious. You have to go and tell that story to Robert Black. Right <laughs> Well, I mean, I could, but it's Monica I really want to introduce him to. And he was like, no, 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 come on. And he took me (laughs) up the stairs and Monica's standing like this. And I'm trying, you know, he says, tell tell Robert the story. Robert, this is Claudia. And she's got this story to tell you. Robert has had probably more acid on this night than he's ever had before. (laughs) (laughs) But Robert could give less of a shit about my story. And I didn't want to tell it to him, but his manager kept encouraging me. And I was like, he doesn't... And then he sees this young girl in the crowd and says, that girl's Asian. And I said, uh, yep. He goes, I like Asian girls. And I was like, oh no, this is turning very dark, very quickly, run away, run away. And so I just said to him, uh, uh, or just before that had happened, I was like, oh, do you know what? Do you know what I've got in my purse right now? And I pulled out my- CD. LSD. <laughs> that would have got his attention. Yeah. It's actually the CD, the double CD of Remastered. And ah. Would you mind signing it and i said i'm sorry it's been remastered and my friend my boyfriend afterwards, was like that's so cool that you apologize for it being remastered that's amazing and we were like do you have a pen does anyone have a pen and everyone's going pen 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 and monica sort of pulls out this lip pencil and hands it to me and robert plant signs the remasters cover with her red lip pencil
0: that's hilarious um,
1: and rob and And then Robert Black took our number and said, look, do you want tickets to the show? And I said, of course we want tickets to the show. And he said, then you can come backstage. And I was like, okay. So he said, call me tomorrow morning at the hotel and arrange it. You know, I'll give you the tickets and then come backstage. And I thought, yeah, like this is gonna happen. But sure enough, Monica's standing there saying, cool, make the call, get the (laughs) ticket." And I make the call and I chat to Robert. And I said, how'd your night go? And he said, well, it got a bit weird because we got in the car and we were trying to take Robert back to the hotel because there were so many girls waiting for him there. And he suddenly just got out of the van and saw someone across the road that he didn't like the look of and beat the living shit out of them. And then we had to drag Robert off the person, get him into the van. I probably shouldn't be telling the story. That's um, not a good story. <laughs> um, and then we sort of went back to the hotel and it was sort of so late and you know, all the girls have been waiting. So anyway, um, we're going off to Bronte to have breakfast. Do you want to join us? Yeah. <laughs> No, Brian, <laughs> beating the living shit out of a total stranger. <laughs> no, no, that's when kind a of woman says no.
0: Yeah, um, I can see that.
1: So, but then I was like, mm, I think we're good for breakfast. Tried to get my voice down a little. I said, we'd love to come and see the show. And they said, how many tickets do you want? So we got tickets, we went backstage. Robert was in no state after the concert to to see us and to hang with us. I think we might have met Jimmy Page and then oddly enough, you know, Monica kept in contact with the with the manager and they then went to Melbourne for their tour, which is where she lives. So she then got quite pally with him and wow. got to actually hang out a bit more with the band. But it was just this weird sort of multi-continent, multi-city sort of experience with Robert. I,
0: you know, I met him, um, one of the things my wife and I like to do is when we go on uh, vacation or go on holiday, we don't really plan anything just get a car and drive yes. and so we were in England and uh we were driving and we were in Bath and there was a place called the Bell Pub in Bath mm-hmm. that he apparently owns and um I didn't know that and we stopped at, you know I'm looking for a pub and there was the pub and we stopped in to drink and he was at the bar and uh I recognized him you know after the fact um I, I think I actually <laughs> And pushed him out of the way to get a drink <laughs> I was like hey hey come on you, you're taking up to in and and, got, and then somebody goes you know who that is and i go i don't give a shit who it is he would sit away between me and my drink i learned in a mosh pit damn it out of the way so <laughs> but he was i i brief run in with him but i'll tell you the keith richards story because I, I tell this one um i was in New york with a friend of mine who was trying to set up a birthday party for a friend of his who's a director uh john waters and uh, it was his 50th birthday party i believe and so we went to a a place it was a a, a pub uh, It was in the same building as uh as his apartment um and he was on the condo board and so we walked downstairs and this turned out it was called prob It was one of the i mean it was really a hot spot in lower manhattan and uh so we walked in and there's like a line around the block and uh he had opposed them coming into his condo. And the when he lost the owner said, "Look, no hard feelings. Here's a key." So, you know, he gave him a little, you know, key card or whatever and said, "Whenever you want come on in." And as I said, it was a really hot spot. So, we walked up and I go, "We're not getting in here." And he goes, uh, the big bouncer, you know, looks like Shrek, comes up and says, "Out. You're, you're back of the line." And he goes, Key. And the guy goes, I don't know why I'm talking to you. Come on in. So we we came in and sat down. He says, I'm going to go talk to the manager. Just wait here at the bar. So I said, Okay. So I'm at the bar and I drink bourbon. I don't drink vodka. So I, I was looking. There's this old guy looked like he was, you know, basically, I thought he was, you know, homeless. And this guy's sitting there and I go, Hey, what are you drinking, pal? I, I don't drink, uh, you know, vodka. I said, You, you recommend something, I'll, I'll buy you a shot. And he goes, I still and I go, all right, still at Nile. I'll have a shot of Stoli and have him one too. So we had a couple of shots. I say, hey, thanks. Pretty good. And uh, my buddy comes back and he looks at me, he looks over my shoulder, and his eyes are like this. And he goes, What's your problem? And he goes, he goes, that, that that's Keith. And I go, Keith, who? I said, what's your name? And he goes, This is Keith. And he goes, Keith Richards, you idiot. And I go, Is your last name Richards? And he goes, yeah. And I go, yeah, his name's Keith Richards. And he goes, oh, the Rolling Stones. And I go, huh, are you Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones? He goes, that's right. I go, what the fuck am I buying you a drink for then? What are you paying for mine? <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's my Keith Richards story.
1: Was it, was it, that's amazing. Was it Whoopi Goldberg who was, I think she was hosting the Oscars and the year that Dead Man Walking was up to be nominated for best film. And she said, which surprised me and a lot of people that it wasn't actually a documentary about Keith Richards. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, you know, uh, the joke, I mean, we did a documentary on the beginning of the coronavirus, and I said, uh, you know, after the coronavirus, the only two things that will still be alive are Keith Richards and cockroaches. Yep, that's it. <laughs> that's it, but uh, small world. <laughs> well, listen, Claudia, I really do appreciate you being uh, on the show. It was a lot of fun, and I, uh, I'm i amazed at the work you do. I, I really think that's pretty cool. Uh, helping people out with PTSD is something I, I, I wish more people cared about it as much as you do um, well
1: and I, I mean it's 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 the, the whole idea of paying it forward I think once we've ended our own suffering we really don't want other people to suffer the way that we have so it's just sort of spreading the word and and, and making sure people are resourced and one of the companies that I work for their mission statement was so appealing to me because they wanted to work with the elusively talented and the under-resourced wow. and you know that that so appeals to the underdog in me and in everyone I love you know just that, that what would it take for those people people to be resourced enough, both internally in themselves and externally, to actually reach their potential? Um, there are lots of tools and links and stuff that I can send you if you're interested. Please, to yes, we'll on. put
0: on the uh, this drops on Tuesday. We'll put it on the show.
1: Okay. And if you're ever interested, I mean I'd love to take you down the rabbit hole and give you a session because it's experiential. Life is
0: experiential I would love that. I was that. I, I felt I, I couldn't ask for that, but it's oh, no, an offering. Please. I would
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's and then you'll know because it's hard to tell people. Like you ask me, so what exactly do you do with people? And it's like, well, how do I tie this up in a neat bow in a in a one minute answer? But I think once you've experienced you'll get a sense of what it is and there's a lot of literature about how it works and the techniques and and it can be used anywhere. So I'd love your colleagues who are having a rough time in the trenches to be able to
0: uh, and there's a lot of that but yeah please uh let's let's stay in touch on that i appreciate that well listen thank you you for it was a lot of fun and we'll do it again the name of the show is just by the way i I maybe jumped the gun but i'd love to have you back if if you'd like to
1: are you kidding this is the best
0: fantastic the name of the show is just ask the question i am your host brian karam thanks and we'll catch you next time